let me take that back. We've not moved past from Europe to the degree <laughs> that I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to the first episode of season 11 of Surviving Society. We are really excited to kick off this season with Keston Perry, who is a lecturer at the University of West England. He's a political economist with a special interest in global development, industrial policy, finance and climate justice. And I think it's just worth saying, T, between you and I, that when we read some of the papers that Keston sent over to us before this episode, Tito was voice noting me being like, Keston stuff, it's made me rethink everything. And I was like, I was like, let me read, let me read. And then I went to read, I was like, Oh my God, I'm so angry. It's such a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I am convinced that our listeners are going to be blown away by some of your work. It would be really great to locate some of the things we're going to talk about now with regards to global development and global development studies and what that, in your sort of scholarship, what you say about that. To start, we have to locate development and the idea of development as a colonial project. It was around, I guess, just after the, the, the Second World War when there was serious disruption across the world, not only in Europe, because of the lack of resources that Europe, Western countries, they did not have countries in the global south, such as, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean, where I'm from, Africa and so on, were mobilizing and were demanding changes, both in terms of their political status, in terms of rights for workers, rights for women and so on. And that resulted in Great Britain and, and much of Western Europe saying that they can no longer afford continue having an empire and and continue having colonies. So the issue of of decolonization came about as a result of an economic imperative on one hand, but more importantly came about as a result of the kinds of struggles and protests and mobilization that happened among workers in the global south as well as among a number of marginalized groups, in particular, especially black, underemployed and unemployed people, unskilled and non-skilled people, and so on, who were mobilizing for changes in the colonial setup and changes in how uh, the situation there was managed. So, you know, as a result of that, we had a number of other institutions as a result of the war, institutions that were created, such as the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, which was called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and uh, we had the United Nations that sort of came after, uh, I guess, the League of Nations. So we, you know, these institutions were actually set up to reconstruct Europe. To a large degree, and reconstruct the monetary system uh, that and transfer resources to many of the countries that were devastated as a result of the war. The colonial project that was development 
came as a result of a number of different forces that were, were simultaneously taking shape at that particular point in time and was not necessarily because of charity or because of some sort of charitable feeling or ethos in Western Europe and much of the global north. <laughs> I knew, Kester, when we were reading your stuff, which is in the episode notes, listeners, I knew yeah. that this episode was going to blow me away because I don't know enough about this stuff, but also yeah. when you do hear it articulated in this way, it just makes you really deep how... How fucked up it is, man. Yeah, how fucked up <laughs> it is. And like how much people had to fight for colonialism to end, but also the extent to which we are post-colonial. And I guess we're going to go into more detail on that when we talk about the actual, how finance is affecting countries in the global south now. But I guess the thing that really stands out for me that you said was how development was set up for the recovery of the global north Whereas it's positioned and myth as presented, the myth is that it was something to help the global south. The people in power knew, right? They know. President Chirac has been on record in 1988 in saying, without without the colonies, France would be a third world country. Without the colonies in 1988, he's saying that the continued extraction of wealth from those former colonies, even though they still had them with the French banking note, they shared the same monetary system. Right. Without that wealth, they would be nowhere. This is one of the things that people in power know, people that read know, we understand without the colonies, we would not be where we are. It's never put that way. It's always myth that somehow they're doing us a favour. The whole issue around aid has been constructed around that myth that Mm -hmm. it is charity that either Great Britain or the United States or other countries, other imperial powers, they're giving an offering of their goodwill to these countries. And that that has nothing to do with kickbacks that often, or how those aid projects are set up are often meant to benefit uh, multinational corporations, uh, consulting firms and so on in the global north. I also want to suggest that many of the the developed and the supposed progress that we saw in many of these countries was as a result of efforts of local communities, of marginalized peoples, of workers, of labor and so on who fought and struggled for change in their societies. And so I want to suggest as well that it was not only there was some agency on the part of those societies and people who wanted some form of change, political change, also economic change to say that we are no longer accepting the colonial system as it is. So we had intellectuals who came about. So we had people like Raoul Prebish, uh, some of my Caribbean priors, Lloyd Best, Norman Govan, Arthur Lewis, people like Carrie Levitt, and a number of Caribbean economists and scholars who, Beckford as well, who, who said that were these ideas that were emanating from the global north would, did not suit our purpose to either transform our societies. And so we had to invest creating new sorts of ideas and new policies and systems that would best suit our needs. Uh, when I look back, especially in the post-war period, uh, countries, and again, it's, it's kind of kind of hard to decontextualise because it's always in the context of the Cold War or some kind of a macro event. But 
whenever post-colonial societies have taken it to try and change that economic system, the global north have gone to lengths to either remove them or frustrate them, frustrate their efforts by piling on more debt, take on structural adjustment policies. They're frustrated that these people at every turn when they try to implement these new ideas. So I guess it's the idea of fatigue. These people are tired of fighting, man, fighting all the time. Grand was telling me about the efforts being put into the island and it cost them so much money. And when I read your paper, this is just more debt on top of more debt. How do we as people get out of this kind of trap? Because when we do try to do that, historically, our efforts have been frustrated. In one of Keston's papers, he says, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that yeah. sort of keeps going, going around in my head yeah. like... It's just a cycle of extraction, exploitation, neo-colonialism. Where is the end? Like, is the end in sight? Like, I mean, maybe, Kesson, could you could talk to a little bit about the news we've seen about Barbados recently? Is that something that we should be thinking is a, something more positive? So we also had people like Kwame Nkrumah in the, in, and mm-hmm. Paul Senghor and Yuri in, in Tanzania and so on. So we, and Walter Rodney, of course. So I would suggest there is a level of extraction and exploitation that, that happens and that continues up to, to this day. But I think what people's populations, movements in the global south have tried and continually do is to resist and to, to try in whatever form they can find ways of bringing some form of benefit and, and progress to their communities and their societies. So I don't think it's necessarily only a story of gloom and doom. It yes. is also a story of struggle. It is also a story of resistance and a story of of how can you make do. So we are often make do societies, if, if I can term it that way, and trying to make whatever and, and, and mobilize whatever resources and mobilize however we can try to change institutions and the political setup in whatever way we can within those constraints externally that we face. One of the things that came out to me as when I was reading some of your stuff is, is the figures, right? You gave them figures for the Bahamas, how much they make from the financial industry, right? And how much is put back in terms of GDP. It's 1%, but I think it's 173 billion and that turns into 1% of GDP. That, to anyone, the, the extremities of those numbers are so stark it makes you think, well, what's happening here? I completely agree with your response to what I just said, by the way. Like, it isn't all doom and gloom. And, and sometimes when you present stuff like that, when you're talking about the global south, it kind of takes away agency. And I, I totally agree with you on that. And I should have been more careful in how I articulated that. I think it's just because, I think I artic- articulated it in this way, because you write so clearly about how extractive the global north has been about the global south and i've just entered the chat just like raging um but you're right like it's there are nuances there and we have to focus on as well as the extraction the resistance but yeah the example that tiso just gave about the figures like i i I messaged tiso being like (laughs) what is this in in response to that um concern so i've been my my interest in climate change came about and climate justice and that's where that article 
uh, emanates from and some of my work came about as a result of my visit and having lived in, in Haiti for a few months back in 2018. At the point of uh, there was a political crisis and there were massive protests in Haiti. When people talk about Haiti and when you see Haiti represented in the international media, you often hear about the most unequal society, the, the most impoverished society in the in the Western Hemisphere. You hear a lot of these superlatives. And mm-hmm. when you visit Haiti, the kinds of ways that that people find to survive and the ways, you know, the, the, the resilience of the people, the kinds of the, the the good naturedness of people tells a much more complex story of of the kinds of, of societies that we hear talked about it internationally in the media oftentimes. And and I mean the the, the story of the Bahamas is a, is a, also a very complex one, also linked to Haiti, but I'm gonna come to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Where the climate situation, the, the Caribbean region has become and is one of the most exposed and vulnerable regions in the entire globe. But it only hosts about, what, 40 million people in total. If we consider only the English speaking islands, that's about 14 million people only. And they are facing the, in terms of loss of economic well-being, in terms of debts per capita. Haiti is what ranks among one of the top three countries in terms of debts per capita as a result of extreme weather events. The Bahamas in 2019 faced, I guess, on record the, the most catastrophic hurricane to have ever hit the Bahamas. As a result of that, you hear in the international media, the Bahamas and officials in the Bahamas, or even celebrities supporting the Bahamas, they have to beg the international community and make appeals for some form of aid and support. The story is a lot more complex than that. The climate crisis is as a result of activities mostly of elites and governments in the global north. The activities that, that led to industrialization, that led to the, the welfare state, however hollowed out it, it might be now in Great Britain and, and some other parts of the, some other sort of Western countries. Uh, the, 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 those activities led to the kinds of exposure that these countries are facing today. And the, the kind of, colonial extraction that resulted in infrastructure being uh, very palace as it, as the unhealth systems and, and, and so on being palace in, in those countries, we have to link those, the effects of the climate crisis to things that are going on in the, the West and that have gone on for decades. We've also recently heard a narrative around tax havens uh, from especially economists or, you know, their economists and activists, both in, in Europe, the United States have sort of brand, branded these countries, such as the Bahamas tax havens. But often you don't, they, they don't make the link between the fact that the policies that started under Margaret Thatcher and before led to the, the increase of tax havens and offshore, what are called offshore financial centers in those places, because the marginal, those countries having already been marginalized 
in the global economy had to find niches and product markets in order to survive and in order to make some sort of income and, and generate some sort of revenue in order to meet their public services and whatever what have you. So the policies of the global north led to the increase in tax havens, led to the the kinds of of those activities happening in those countries where multinationals and and elites, financial elites, can get off, you know, tax almost tax free in and and sort of send their assets and and post their assets in those countries. But Bahamas, being a tax haven, has not actually benefited to a large degree from that particular status. And that's the point that I make in that particular article, where on the one hand, you have it considered a tax haven, and and on the top set of countries on those blacklists that you have in, in, in the global hemisphere for tax havens and financial improprieties and, and lack of transparency and so on. The, the, the Bahamas, on the other hand, is one of the most exposed countries, both economically and on, in terms of, of natural disasters and, and climate-induced disasters in particular. And those things have not balanced off in terms of benefiting to a great extent in, in aggregate the people of the Bahamas and other countries in the Caribbean as a whole. Just so our listeners are clear... Could you give some examples of the types of conditions that facilitate climate crisis within the Caribbean and Latin America more specifically? Yeah. And where that's located historically as well? In terms of, let's take the example of the types of infrastructure, for instance, that Caribbean countries have erected. It's based a lot, given the climate, you would think the infrastructure would be much more suited to the climate and suited to getting ventilation and getting a lot of air into buildings and and houses and so on. However, it is very concrete laden. The infrastructure is hugely heavily concrete. The infrastructure is often uh, subpar in terms of its ability to withstand major events. So, for instance, when uh, Hurricane Maria and Irma hit in, in 2017, part of the country of Antigua and Barbuda was completely wiped out because of the type of infrastructure, which is vestige of colonialism, right? So the, the kinds of practices, the kinds of policies and plans that have been put in place in terms of the energy intensive nature of the kinds of infrastructure were put in place long before these countries became independent. Also, we have to recognize, and this is often something that is missed when we discuss the country that I think it was St. Vincent that received independence was in nine, the last country was 1978. Mm-hmm. That is just over 40 years ago. So when we talk about colonialism, it is a very short time ago that many of these countries became independent or became uh, responsible for their own affairs. To some degree, uh, in some other countries, it was a little longer than that. For many people who live in Britain now, they would have lived during the time that colonialism existed. So So we have to sort of put that into perspective. The other issue around the kinds of institutional institutions that have been set up to address the climate change issue. 
for instance, Haiti is a country I know best with respect to this. Haiti's budget, national budget, is at least 30-40% of the national budget come from donors. Most, as a result of that, Haiti is very constrained in the types of resources or the amount of resources that it can allocate to actually addressing the climate change problem while it deals with mass poverty, while it deals with mass unemployment, and so on. The resources that are available to Haiti mostly come from donors, mostly come from increased debt from international financial agencies like the IMF and other sort of international creditors and so on. So when you say the ability to invest actually in addressing the climate change problem just is not within reach for many countries, especially for low-income countries like Haiti. Those are two situations. When we talk about the kinds of uh, how those countries were developed in terms of the planning setup of the country uh, and how the topography was utilized. So we know that most of those countries were set up as plantations and plantation societies. And that required a certain types of infrastructure to ensure that one type of, so in the case of, of many of the English-speaking Caribbean, it was uh, sugarcane that was produced. So for in order for that particular type of crop, it was not a diversified economy in terms of the different types of products that could have been possibly uh, produced there and cultivated. So in order for that particular type of product, you had to have certain types of agricultural practices. And those agricultural practices meant that most of the resources agricultural produce was extracted and the land itself was not taken care of. The land itself, in terms of the types of environmental practices that perhaps indigenous peoples might have been aware of in order to you know, ensure that the land flourished, in order that, that there was less landslides and less soil erosion and so on, indigenous peoples knew these kinds of practices and had this kind of knowledge in order to ensure that the land revitalized itself. Colonialists, on the other hand, were not interested in, in ensuring that the land was revitalized. And so the kinds of economic activity that we've seen in much of the Caribbean region and in other colonies of other parts of the world were extractive to the extent that uh, when there are major weather events that we are seeing increasingly now, the frequency of hurricanes, only this 2020 Atlantic hurricane season, we've seen about 13 or 14 different hurricanes already, tells you that the land capacity, the environmental capacity to withstand those kinds of events that are much more uh, devastating now just does not exist and did not exist because after independence as well, governments, political uh, players had to continue or they continued much of those activities because that is what they knew. That is how their economies were set up. And that's how the institutions were set up, really, to continue much of the sort of agricultural uh, type of production or even tourism in some instances. And, and, and now we've seen more and more uh, oil and gas production in, in places like Guyana, Trinidad and Tobago and so on. Do you think, Keston, response 
to climate change from the global north. Do you think that's been totally inadequate? So all the Paris Accords, yeah, so they've all met up to discuss this thing, but I feel there's a, a, a disconnect because the climate climate change threat to us seems existential. Like, it's coming, but it's if you think of it, it's like Game of Thrones. Like, <laughs> it's coming, but it hasn't reached us yet. So the West Indies and all that, they deal with it first. But it's not it's not reached our shores yet. Many countries in the global south have been dealing with this for decades. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we had um since the nineteen sixties we had major hurricanes. Uh two thousand and four mm-hmm. uh was an unprecedented year when we had Hurricane Ivan. Grenada completely wiped out. More than yeah. over hundred percent of its GDP wiped out. Two thousand and seventeen came and surpassed two thousand and four and two we now in two thousand and twenty. In terms of the kinds of that kind of historical perspective that put forward is not considered a part in the discussions around climate policy at a global level. And if we did have that kind of perspective, we would be able to attribute much more clearly the responsibility for the climate crisis that we're facing today. And if we attributed that responsibility, remember, as I mentioned, these global institutions where many of these decisions are being taken, especially at the United Nations Framework for Climate Change, which has major responsibility in terms of global climate policy. These decisions are taken not at the behest of developing countries to some, but at based on power relations and, and made of the dominant players like the United States, like China, like European Union, and so on. For instance, in, two, in 2015, when the Paris Agreement was agreed to, the Paris Agreement was voluntary. There was no enforceable mechanism to ensure that the United States actually, things that it signed its signature to, that it was actually uh, beholden to carry out. So the United States, uh, and this was because of the, the kinds of political configuration in the United States, where the U.S. Congress was not interested in, in putting any constraints on its ability to produce energy and fossil fuels and so on. Countries were, the major countries, major powers, wanted a deal that were in their best interest Oftentimes, the scraps and the you know the residual was given to uh, developing countries to to sort of deal with and figure out. Uh, so, for instance, when I we talk about loss and damage as a result of the climate crisis, the Paris Agreement mentioned loss and damage. There's a line in its in the agreement around loss and damage. So that's me- meaning paying countries or compensating countries for the losses that they face as a result of climate change. But there was no uh, international financing given for loss and damage. So when the Bahamas has incurred about $3.4 billion or Mozambique in 2019, over $4 billion or uh, Dominica, which over a, a few hundred million dollars, which was more than 100% of its GDP in 2017 as a result of Hurricane Irma, they have no mechanism internationally to re- to get compensation for the losses that they receive, that they incur. Most of the whatever support that is given come from international funding and often either through debt through from the IMF. So the IMF has been a major player in issuing more and more debt 
to countries when they face major disasters. And it is just it just shows you a very unjust and, and very unequal system. I, I'm trying to go back to my uh, undergraduate economics here. So isn't there a, a theory in economics about pollution, about the idea that if you have a, an activity that causes pollution, that the idea of a tax, could that not be worked into northern policies? So the idea that we put out X that has a impact on Y, so maybe we, we should pay for a percentage of this. So there is... Um... The idea you're talking about is an externality. So climate change. That's the one. That's the one. It's an externality. <laughs> and mainstream economists would put forward the idea that you should tax polluters. So you create a market around carbon pollution that has been going on in the European Union in particular. And, and so you attach a tax to, con- to, to companies or particular institutions as a result of uh, their polluting activities. However, the challenge with that particular mechanism is that it does not, market solutions tend to benefit the most powerful. It's a market solution. It tends to benefit the most powerful. It tends to benefit those who can, in some way or the other, manipulate the system. And it tends to benefit people who already have resources. So it does not, at the center of it, does not have an ethos of justice. It does not have an ethos of fairness. And it does not have the idea that the climate crisis disproportionately affects different constituencies in the globe as a whole, but also particularly small island states and lower income countries. And as a result, we sh- there should be more resources and more efforts with no strings attached that go towards those countries. Let me tell you this, in, the, in 2010 and as well, there was the, the Green Climate Fund. And in Haiti, I worked on the Green Climate Fund to set up a system and a mechanism for Haitians and the Haitian authorities to be able to access the Green Climate Fund. The Green Climate Fund is set up in such a way that it is a catch-22 kind of situation where you have to have certain um, capacity in order to access any resources from it at all. The problem is that in Haiti and and other low-income countries, that capacity, as a result of the history that we all know well now, is that they don't have the kinds of capacity that they're asking for. And the kinds of rigid rules that come with it often means that these countries would lose out to other richer, more developed countries. It is... The, the mechanism in itself is an un- inequitable one, and it does not actually say you have faced $10 billion in, in disaster for a period of time, you're going to get back $10 billion. No mm-hmm. questions asked. That is what is going to be given to you as a compensation mechanism. It's not a mm-hmm. compensation mechanism. And for what I have been advocating for and what I've been writing for, and I mean, there have been people who have been talking about this way before me, um, is for climate reparations as a mechanism to be attached to the costs that countries face as a result of 
uh, the climate crisis. That is interesting because I was going to speak to you next about this idea of a solution and in your paper, reparations. That R word. Yeah. Yeah. The R word has, especially within the black community, it has a particular resonance, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm guilty of this myself. When I hear about reparations, my mind automatically, I don't know why it does, jumps to America. It, it, it yeah. automatically jumps to America and the context of slavery, right? Yeah. But then reading your paper, I kind of made me feel a bit ashamed that I was so narrow in my thinking. It makes perfect sense. Redress this kind of imbalance that we have because the existing system just re-entrenches inequality. We could also talk about Great Britain. So oftentimes yeah. we see slavery as a problem that existed over there, or we see that mm. the problems as a result of colon- colonialism and empire existed because Great Britain did not have actual slaves or hair. And, and it went mm. other places to create uh, colonies. But my approach, the way I look at it is that countries, especially former col- colonizers and colonial powers who have contributed most to the problem of the climate crisis, it is quite a distinct correlation, significant mm. correlation between countries that are supposedly more developed as a result of extraction uh, have, you know, the richer countries actually tend to be the ones that have contributed most to greenhouse gas emissions. And so in the case of Europe, uh, European Union and the United States, both are leading countries historically for their contribution to the greenhouse gas emissions on a global scale. And almost about 50% of historical global uh carbon emissions have been generated by these two sets of countries, which happen to be colonial powers. The issue is for me that you have to look at it from a historical perspective. So when I talk about uh, climate reparations on Twitter, people don't want to hear about that, especially, especially my European colleagues, might I say my white colleagues, some of them, they don't want to hear about climate reparations. They want to hear about fancy things like climate debt swaps and what they're calling all sorts of fancy different names, which means more or less more increasing, decreasing autonomy for those, for, for lower income and, and developing countries to decide on their own future and also de- for creditors to have a greater influence on the kinds of decisions they make in terms of climate action. So that is bizarre. That is totally not on my radar. Climate reparations, on the other hand, have to be a program of attributing responsibility and also allocating resources according to the responsibility you have for the climate crisis. And the responsibility in this case is weighed heavily on the former colonizing countries, the United States, Great Britain, and much of uh, Western Europe. So I think it, it has to be climate reparations have to be a program of apportioning both responsibility and resources based on countries that have done the most damage and countries that are facing the most damage. And it has to be a program that is not aid, that is not debt, that have no ties, that only suggest based on the amount of losses and damages that you have faced, you should be compensating 
compensated by an international mechanism based on those losses in order to boost your resilience on the one hand and have sort of long-term programs around resilience and to community resilience and, and a sort of democratic and community-based approach, more resources and budgetary resources that can be uh, accessed within a short period of time or rapid response type of resources. So when you face a disaster, you can access those resources and you can either do the kind of relief work and the kind of rebuilding that that needs to be done and sort of you can move forward as a country so that you can face and withstand disasters in a much more position of strength than weakness. I was thinking back to my time when I worked in a bank and the bank's financial response to people who had debt. So what you said to set up a fund, which seems quite equitable, but the idea that financial institutions are lent money, the idea of writing debt off or not getting nothing back is anathema to them. Like, it doesn't make sense. I suggested to one of my bankers, I said, why don't you just write all the debt off? Because it, it just seems like the fair thing to do. And he said, that's unacceptable. We do not even consider that. That's not in the position. So the idea that these international institutions or nation states would even, even what you said is equitable and fair, start that system. They're not starting from that. That's not the starting position that they're at. Mm-hmm. Why don't you do that? The first thing, when you just said it now about swaps, they came with all these fancy financial instruments, which were just basically complicating the idea of lending money back to these people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you convince these people or convince international institutions to base to base policies based on equity and justice first, rather than financial return, because that's the issue, I think. I think this question always comes up when you discuss reparations. How do you actually implement it? And it's a question that I think, because reparations is a political solution, it is not based on some sort of fancy modeling or based on some sort of fancy sort of economic instrument, right? And that is the point. Because it is a political solution, it has to come from a political movement that is making this kind of demand. Let's separate the sort of personal banking kinds of transactions from the kind of monetary and and fiscal uh, system that has to be set up in order for reparations to happen. It it is a political solution. It is not based on uh, fancy economic modeling. It's based on very simple. You cause this particular problem you must pay for this particular problem in a in a channel that is very direct and meets the needs of of the the people the victims or the people who have been hurt as a result and and because it's a political solution it has to come from a kind of political movement and a transnational uh multiracial multi borders however you want to call it it has to come from that kind of movement for that kind of a solution to be put forward on the the international agenda. It will not serve debt debt write-offs. So, for instance, now the COVID-19 pandemic that we're facing, uh, many sort of private creditors have been very resistant to conducting debt write-offs. Those things can be done quite easily. Mm -hmm. 
debt write-offs can be done quite easily, especially by these hugely rich institutions. The issue is that they want to ensure that you remain in a position of dependence and they want to ensure that you remain in a position of weakness to these particular uh, investors and bondholders and all these people. The momentum for that and the demand and the struggle for that have to come from somewhere else. And that has to come from some sort of political and social movement that is demanding uh, that kind of restitution. The The challenge is that much of the sort of climate activism that we've seen over the the past few years have either disregarded the global south, they have been majority, mostly white types of climate movements and activists. And so their interests have not also been, their interests have not been the concerns of the global south. In my view, that has to drastically change in order for us to to meet the demands of the climate crisis that we're facing today. It'd be really good, your comment just there on climate activism. If you could send like a message to people that are involved in things like Extinction Rebellion, what would it be? So let me. <laughs> that is, we're critical of Extinction Rebellion for the reasons that you've said, but they are one of the only sort of global organisations where we're seeing any kind of like drastic pressure. So hear hear me out on this one. Uh, <laughs> Extinction Rebellion and and movements such as as that one. So we've seen similarly with the Sunrise Movement in the United States, which is a little browner than Extinction mm-hmm. Rebellion to some degree. They have a little more color and more melanin in in the mix in Sunrise Movement in the United States. But the the, the issue is that they have adopted politically. They have adopted the the, the framework that the right-wing movements have set for them. Mm. They have adopted the framework Mm. that we need to be parochial, we need to be nationalistic, and we need to be uh, focused on our immediate needs that we can see right here in front of us. And so when when they've adopted that that right-wing framing and they're responding to that right-wing framing, their solutions actually respond to the the needs that are immediate to their communities. And their communities are often very rich. Their communities are often either middle class or rich, or they are white in in many instances, at least in in the European side. So they are not concerned about what's happening internationally. They're not concerned about the brown and black folks that are every year around this time they you know they experience flood flooding that is a yearly occurrence it is every few months in some instances they're experiencing flooding and experiencing major disasters in their communities so i would say the message to them is that they need to get out of the framing ascendant right wing movements in either Europe or the United States. And their framing has to be internationalist. Their framing has to be based on international solidarity and it has to be based on justice. If they put it forward, they would put forward solutions that meet those particular objectives. Their solutions would be very different. Their discussion 
and debates on these issues would be very different than than what it is today. You talk about the political will. I can ask about what's the political will in the global south, like especially in relation to the Caribbean. I speak to some of my people back home in Grenada. There's been a turn to a future polluter, China, under the uh, Bridge Road Initiative. Is this a another weight? Is this another debt trap? For these, for these countries, or is this a viable solution to tackle the problems that they are going to, that they are facing currently and in the future? Hmm. Turning towards China or some other power that's not the United States or, uh, Europe. I mean, we've long moved past from Europe. Well, let me take that back. We've not moved past from Europe to the degree <laughs> that I'm saying. Um, is <laughs> not actually solving the problem. So when I when I tell you we have a very make-do kind of approach to things, that the China solution is, is a, a response to that, encapsulation of that make-do within the constraints that we're facing. How do we mm-hmm. gather resources and get some form of um, capacity to do what we're doing? Um, it's not a solution long-term to either issues around climate change or issues around economic development. <laughs> in, in short, uh, China <laughs> is not the solution. Um, the, solu- the solution have to come from communities and uh, the populations that reside in those countries and movements that can be built out of those kinds of things. At the moment, you're correct to suggest that I don't see those movements happening, but we are reaching a point where it is is going to be inevitable. Uh, and the kinds of crises that we're going to be facing, multiple crises, the political uh, directorate and the political elites in those in, in many of the Caribbean countries are, just don't have the solutions. So it is going to be, get into a, a state where uh, solutions have to come from the people themselves and whether that's today or whether that's in 10 years time i don't know but it it, it is going to have to germinate and we're going to have to cultivate that 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 kind of um bottom-up approach one of the things that will drive that process is europe and the west sphere or sorry the global north sphere of immigration from the global south once climate change will make these places uninhabitable for most people people will be on the move like they always have done in history and mm-hmm. Europe won't stop people coming. People will always come. And I think out of self-interest alone, it will motivate the global north to start thinking about these solutions. And it will generate that political will because right now, the people will start moving. I think this is I had an odd conversation once with a guy who turns out to be a nuclear in, a nuclear engineer working on a project. And he said, we've seen the, the, the first climate change war in Sudan and before. People are moving because of climate change. Disruption it has been happening and people will start to move. And people, people, brown and black people who are predominant will start arriving in white spaces. And we understand given our experience here as in the diaspora, that they don't like that natural self-interest for them to maintain whiteness or the white policy that they have kind of stuck in through the back door in some places. We can, I mean, we can be hopeful. Um, (laughs) I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I don't think I agree with you on that. I'm not super convinced about it either because, uh, for instance, I I wrote a piece, um, 
uh, for, for Africa is a country recently where the United States and the policy of the climate policy of Joe Biden treats the global South more or less as a security threat. And when the United States deems you a security threat, in this particular instance, under the guise of climate change, they're going to address you as a security threat, which means some form of militarism and some sort of militarization of that effort to address that problem. So, or what they deem to be the problem. So, you know, we're seeing it in terms of the, the, the southern border in the United States, where they have militarized the southern border against immigration from Mexico and, and Central America and so on. In terms of climate change, there's going to be another layer, another step to that. And I think that is going to be a huge, huge problem. Um, so mm, we, we'll have to wait and see, but I, I'm <laughs> le- <laughs> I don't see Boris Johnson waking up tomorrow and say, oh my God, climate refugees are going to come. Let's give reparations. <laughs> Kester, thank you so much. That was... That was absolutely brilliant. Like I'm sat here, like my mind is blown. Time went too fast. I've got so much more I want to ask you. Keston, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Patrons, there's another episode for you now on the Patreon site. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.